purpose-built rental housing must be part of the solution going forward. It's going to play a big part in our housing solution. You know, we need to, I think, recognize that, prioritize that, and most importantly, support that as a society and as policymakers and lawmakers going forward. Hello, and welcome to Sink or Swim, a weekly podcast brought to you by RentSync, where we take a deep dive into the prop tech, multifamily, and rental housing industry. In each episode, we uncover the technologies and strategies used to help overcome operational challenges and increase the value of your multifamily investments. So let's get into our conversation today. All right, welcome back to another episode of Sink or Swim, a podcast where we take a deep dive into the prop tech, multifamily, and rental housing industry. I'm your host, Matt Hildebrand, and today I'm proud to be joined by Tony Irwin, President and CEO of FERPO, the Federation of Rental Housing Providers of Ontario. Tony, thank you so much for joining me today. Great to be with you, Matt. Now, with well over 2,000 members, FERPO is the leading advocate for quality rental housing in Ontario. Last month, FERPO collaborated with Build, Finnegan Marshall, and our good friends at Urbanation to repair a report on the current state of the market for purpose-built rental developments. This report is a very important contribution to the ongoing discussions around how to increase purpose-built rental construction in Ontario. So we wanted to have Tony on today to discuss this even further. So, Tony, my first question to you is really just how did this report come together? Well, thanks, Matt. Again, thank you very much for having me with you today. So, this is another important report that looks at the state of the current rental housing market, and this time with a focus on the GTA. Uh, and, uh, of course, there have been numerous reports. FERPO has commissioned several. But given the gravity of the situation that we're facing relative to the need for more housing of all types, including more purpose-built rental housing, we thought it was important to partner with BUILD, our friends at the Building Industry and Land Development Association, and work with Urban Nation and Finnegan Marshall to just do a updated or on the sort of state of affairs relative to rental housing in a very important part of the province and, in fact, indeed our country. So that's really it was the impetus. We want to continue to put data out for the public to see, really try to connect the dots between the situation we're facing relative, as I say, related to just the sheer number, amount of housing that we will require, not to be alarmist or not to sort of be overly dramatic, but to really ensure that we're continuing to sort of sound the alarm bells, because I do think we need to do that. And then, of course, talk about solutions that we can look at for those of us who advocate at different levels of government, you know, how we can continue to work together advancing important policy ideas that will ultimately get shovels in the ground and get more purpose-built rental housing built that's desperately needed over the next decade and beyond. Yeah, now purpose-built rentals in the GTA, you know, they're very common according to the report that, you know, they represent a 41% share of total rented dwellings, but we have started to see a shift with condominium apartment rentals seeing a 54% growth during the last 10 years. So hoping you can just kind of take us through a bit of the current state of purpose-built rentals in the GTA. Sure, that's great. It's good to sort of have that sort of frame of reference before we really dig into the conversation. So, And we also, to be able to do that, just a few weeks ago, CMHC released their latest rental market survey, which is, a, of course, another treasure trove of data that's collected annually. And so from that, we can glean some important uh, data. First of all, an overall decline in Ontario's vacancy rate from 3.5% to 1.8. When you look at the Greater Toronto area, among newer purposeful rental buildings, the vacancy rate, in fact, was 1.5% in the fourth quarter of 2022, down from a high of 5.7% in the last quarter of 2020. So 
what's that telling us? I mean, that's telling us that any thinking that market softening during COVID, which we know it did for many reasons that I'm sure you've discussed here and elsewhere, any thoughts that that might be here to stay for the medium or longer term is clearly no no longer the case. We've returned to pre-pandemic vacancy levels, so very low. When I said whether you look at the provincial vacancy rate or the GTA vacancy rate, both numbers are below 3%, and that's the number that's generally accepted as the baseline for a healthy rental market. So we're not there. We're below that. But demand, of course, as we know, continues to grow. So we look at you know renter households, for example, in the GTA, in our report now, grew more than three times faster than the number of owner households in the last 10 years. And as you indicated, within renter households, purpose-built rentals are the most common form of housing, but they amount to the least new supply. So only 9% of the share of total rental supply in the last 10 years was purpose-built rental. And, you know, it's no surprise, no secret to anyone, I think, who follows this or is a resident themselves and may experience the fact that the majority of our existing stock is aging. Almost 90% of GTA's purpose-built apartment buildings are over 40 years old. So that's a little bit just to give you a sense for where we're at relative to vacancy rates are back down very low. Turnover rates are also low. And why is that? There are limited options for people to go. So in a healthy market where there's greater vacancies, people have freedom to move as their needs change, as their family circumstances might change. That is not the case now. So people are you know, staying in place in their units, not moving around. And of course, we know what that's done relative to rents. So all of this is a perfect storm that tells us we need to take you know, immediate action to be able to incentivize more purposeful rental construction because it is desperately needed. And just the final point, as I said, home ownership rates are dropping. We know the difficulties of people being able to buy a home. And while we at, at FERPO are supportive of all housing types, all housing types are important, whether they be single family homes, condominiums, laneway housing, whatever the kind of housing you want to talk about. But purpose-built rental housing must be part of the solution going forward. It's going to play a big part in our housing solution. You know, We need to, I think, recognize that, prioritize that, and most importantly, support that as a society and as policymakers and going forward. I couldn't agree more. We've been talking a lot about supply issues these last few months here at RentSync and, of course, most places have been talking about that as well. Um, mentioned a few key points there about why we're kind of entering this situation. Now, I think a big fundamental driver of rental housing demand has been population growth. Absolutely. I mean, in the 10-year period to 2022, the GTA population increased by 14%, and projections show this growth is only going to accelerate so, I mean, how many rentals do you think the GTA really needs to build? So the report found that we need more than 300,000 rental units over the next 10 years just to meet demand. So that takes into account both units that are sort of in the pipeline, projected in the pipeline, and new that are not. But when you take that number, 300,000 units, and you know that in 2021, we saw the greatest number of rental starts in, I think, three decades, and that was 13,000. Uh, you can do the math based on that to say, if that was our greatest number in three decades and with 13,000, and we need 300,000 over the next 10 years, we're far off of hitting that. 
And so I think that really should sort of demonstrate to everyone the enormity of the challenge to even hit that number. And as you said, I mean, there are a number of factors for that. You know, this country was built on immigration and hugely important to the fabric of our communities. We talk often within FERPO about the fact that we have a huge shortage of skilled trades. Right. So even if all of the permits that our members have currently in the development approval process were miraculously approved today and they had the green light to put shovels in the ground tomorrow, they couldn't do it. And a big reason why they couldn't do it is because they couldn't find the trades are simply not here to be able to do the work. So we need immigration to continue. We need to attract skilled trades masons and bricklayers and you know all kinds of skilled trades that are required to help build housing to come to our country and our province and our region. And we also need to, this is a separate point, I know it's not related to immigration, but just as I'm on the skilled trades point just for a moment, we of course also need to really encourage our young people here. And I know that's something that the Ontario government and the Minister of Labour has spent a lot of time and focus on, and that is trying to change attitudes around skilled trades that it can be great careers and there's a huge need. So if people are looking for what can be a a very promising, rewarding, and quite frankly, financially lucrative career, skilled trades is something that people should definitely be considering. So that's a bit of a tangent, but, but getting back to the main point, which was immigration, and that is going to continue. We know the federal government has set aggressive immigration targets, and we know that history tells us that a lot of newcomers to Canada end up coming to the Toronto area, to Ontario and to Toronto, specifically the GTA. So we know that those new Canadians are going to continue to come here. And we know that quite often, if you're a new Canadian, a newcomer to our country, you do start by renting. Renting uh, is is a very common way to sort of uh, find housing when uh, newcomers first arrive. And, you know, they may take a different path after being here for some time and establishing themselves. But renting is absolutely the way many start. And that's a whole other topic we can talk about, just the whole attitudes of society around renting in general. But we know that we're going to continue to welcome any newcomers every year and we need to house them. And as it currently sits now, if we're offering opportunities, we're offering a way of life for people to come here, we also have to offer them somewhere to live. And right now we may be succeeding on check some of those boxes, but the housing box is going to become increasingly difficult for us to check. We really need to prioritize and figure out collectively how we're going to house the people who we want to come here and who we need to come here for us to be able to thrive as a society, to grow uh, and, and to do all the wonderful things that we want to do, we need to be able to house them. I think that's a good segue into my next question. I mean, we discussed our population growth that's only going to accelerate. I mean, most notably, population growth within the 35 to 44 age group is accelerating as well. So with that in mind, bringing it back to purpose-built rentals, why is that such a you know, a major key point in our need for purpose-built rentals compared to just increasing rentals in general. You mean, sorry, with respect to that particular age demographic? Exactly, yeah. I mean, you know, what we are seeing, certainly in speaking with our members, is, you know, a real, I think, sort of differences in terms of from maybe in the past in terms of who rents, what the renter sort of profile looks like. So, you know, we do see a lot of, you know, sort of different, whether it be young people, of course, starting out, whether it be older sort of generations who want to perhaps sell their home, unlock equity, give it to their kids so they can hopefully get to the housing market and downsize themselves into a apartment that doesn't require maintenance and sort of more fits their needs. 
In terms of the demographic that you mentioned, we know that the housing market, of course, is extremely difficult to access for many. So I think we're definitely seeing, you know, shift in terms of, quite frankly, people who rent and they rent for a long time. It's not a, I'm doing this when I'm in my early twenties and then I move on to buying a home. It's that because, you know, all the affordability issues that we're seeing relative to inflation, it's impacting most of us, I would say, in many ways, it also is having an impact on housing and on choices they can make. And I think the other point too about it is that rental housing, I would expect, you know, you've probably been in some buildings, perhaps it's not what people think, or it's not what it used to be. If you go into a rental apartments now, newer stock, your mind would be blown away by what you would see. And recognizing that's new, of course, it's not necessarily accessible to everyone that's looking to rent, but certainly there are people who, for which that is very accessible. It provides the amenities that they want in locations that they want, whether it's to say older folks downsizing, young professionals, or in the 30s to 40s demographic, like you said, who think like, this is what I want. This is what allows me to provide for my family, allows me to have kids in programs and do things that are, you know, we want to do, travel, do all the things you want because it's an amazing building and it's one that's well-kept, well-maintained, good amenities. So we're definitely seeing that kind of shift, both in the product that's being offered and quite frankly, what people want as in terms of a lifestyle choice. So all of that factors into why we need to continue to get more rental housing built. Yeah. With the demographic shifts, I think purpose-built rental offers a little bit more flexibility there, You know, more affordable units for the young adults. Certainly. But as well, yep. larger units that can accommodate families and downsizers, like you just mentioned, especially with immigration, more people are probably coming over with larger families and, you know, purpose-built rental can accommodate some of those needs, I think a little well, bit more than condos. And if I can jump in just now, but you're, you're right about that. Condos are, are built differently. They're often, you know, built smaller, you know, purposeful rental. It's a good point you make about larger sized units and that's absolutely a need. And, you know, you look at other cities like New York and, and cities in Europe, they do have large apartments to accommodate families who live there, you know, raise kids there. It's not a temporary accommodation. So we have, certainly if you look at older stock, a lot of older stock was built that way. They were built large bedrooms, large rooms generally. Of course, over time, the economics have made that challenging to be able to continue to do that, which is why it's very important that, it, for example, in Bill 23 that the Ontario government passed last year, they brought forward uh, DC discounts, which are on a sliding scale, uh, largest discount for three bedroom and then down the line. And that's important because we get into the conversation around the economics of building rental versus condo. We know they're very different. We know that rental has been very difficult, personal rental has been very difficult to build in a way that's economically viable. But you're absolutely right that people want more bedrooms in their units. And we have members who want to build them. There have been challenges related to time to get approvals, costs, government fees and charges that are embedded in, into it. And so those discounts, there's no one uh, silver bullet here, but those discounts are very important. And they were done, in my view, because of an acknowledgement that we do need to incentivize larger units, more bedrooms, and they are more you know, costly to build. And so the government said, look, we're going to provide some, some support here by way of a discount to help get those units constructed for growing families who want to have you know more bedrooms and more space. So just kind of part and parcel of what we've been talking about. That's why we're very supportive of government's legislation in Bill 23, because we do think we know from speaking to some of our members that it absolutely makes a difference between a project. In fact, some of our members who were contemplating building condominiums since these changes went into effect have now said, we're going to build those buildings as purpose-built rental. And that's, I think, very positive. Yeah, you kind of bled right into my next question I had for you and don't want you to repeat yourself there. But I mean, sure. 
why has it been such a struggle to develop purpose-built rentals and why have condos seen such an increase over the last decade? I mean, you touched on some policies and some construction costs there, but is there anything else that maybe you didn't touch on yet? Yeah, I can add a few more points. So a couple things I think that are important to understand relative to project economics. So right now in the, the GTA, the average time it takes to get a project from initial application to completion is 100 months. And I want to just stop there, 100 months. I mean, that is a huge number to get a project through the pipeline. Simply not, if anyone wants to wonder, is wondering why, you know, we're not getting housing built. Quite simply, time is killing projects. Time is money. The fact it takes so long. And during that time, of course, a lot can change. Construction costs can go up. There can be all other factors that can, can sort of impact a project while this clock is running on this 100 months. So that's one point that I would say has made the stress on purposeful rental difficult. The other challenge is, of course, with a condominium project, given that the units are sold, you know, three quarters of them are sold before the developer breaks ground, the rest are then held back, are able to be sold to help offset any additional costs that have been sort of imposed by the municipality or other issues. So they're able to sort of, you know, offset some of those issues that might arise with the remaining units that they will sell. And then, of course, the project is done and they move on to something else. A personal rental building can take eight or nine years to turn a profit, to become profitable at all from the time that it's open. So you have to have the financial strength, obviously, to withstand that. And we do have members who have been in this business for 30, 40, 50 years who can and want to. But again, that's the profit. They understand it takes that length of time to turn a profit. Then other factors have to make sense uh, relative to project costs to be able to say, we can take that risk. We can build this building, knowing it's going to take that long to turn a profit. The rest of the sort of you know spreadsheet, if you will, has to make sense. And so the major contributors to why purposeful rental construction has not made sense is absolutely the time it takes to get projects approved. I think it's quite frankly, I think most reasonable people would listen to that and say, that doesn't make any sense. 100 months, that seems insane. So that, and then the, you know, the costs that uh, over time, and certainly over the last five years, the government imposed fees and charges have grown exponentially. And we all know everything's becoming more expensive. But again, you know, we have to look at all those costs and say, is this being done in, in a manner that makes the most sense? Is this being done? Is this fair? There are other issues relative to taxation, for example, personal rental buildings are taxed at the same rate as single family homes. That doesn't make sense. So there are other tax issues as well that make building rental challenging. All to say uh, that that's the reason, though these are all the reasons why many developers over the last two decades have focused on condominiums because, quite frankly, it makes more economic sense. They can produce the return for their investors or for you know, in a more timely fashion, get that return that's needed to be able to get the investment. Because, of course... People will invest where it makes the most sense and they don't have to invest here. They don't have to invest in personal rental housing. They can take that capital and put it somewhere else. We want to attract it here in this industry. And so we have to say, you know, rental is a different model than condominium. And so therefore, perhaps it needs some different regulations or different uh, rules or different systems that allow for it to get built. And understanding those levers and why it's different is important for people to say, we're not looking for handouts, we're looking for playing field that makes sense when the two products are different. You can't have all the same rules apply to both when they are different products. And that's really the point at the end of the day. A lot of good stuff in there. I think it needs repeating 100 months, 100 months. <laughs> I think that's going to stand out to a lot of people there. It just doesn't make sense. Something you mentioned earlier, 
your members want to build. It's not that they're avoiding purpose-built rentals because they're not, you know, into the projects. It just doesn't make sense for them. And that's why condos have attracted a lot more developments over the last few years. I think there's one other point that's really important here about this, and that is the stigma attached to rental versus condominium. And that is the stigma that's attached to renting and renters versus owners, even though we both know that many condos are bought by investors and then in turn rented out. And not to say the condominium projects don't face steep opposition in neighborhoods. They certainly do. Purposeful rental is a whole different level of opposition, of resistance. And that's, I I think I spoke earlier about really needing to change society's views around rental buildings and renting in general, that it does need to become more accepted. When you hear about situations in the media, for example, a parking lot on the Danforth in Toronto a couple of years ago, you know, the owner wanted to redevelop into housing and the community group opposed it on the basis of the parking lot being culturally and historically significant. We're never going to get anywhere. If those kinds of, you know, if, if projects are opposed for that or in the media frequently, I think in Ottawa, there's a project recently, I don't have all the details, but I just saw the headline that said it was to be building affordable project. I'm not sure if it was fully affordable, but certainly there was an affordable component, if not all affordable, and it was being delayed because there's not enough parking. If you don't want to do something, you can come up with obstacles and barriers, whether it be a parking lot being culturally and historically significant. Parking is a big one because, of course, building parking is very expensive in a project. And we know because we did used to be a very car-dependent society, regulations, bylaws were put in place that put in pretty significant parking minimums for buildings. Well, we know now, especially in large urban centers, getting around by car, everyone doesn't have a car anymore. A lot of people don't drive. They use public transit. Of course, owning a car and maintaining a car is very expensive, but those minimum requirements had not changed. So it meant, again, that's another, it was another obstacle to getting projects built. And that's a sort of a little bit mixing up issues here, perhaps. But the point was that Ottawa City Council is delaying approving this project because on the basis of parking. Again, it's just, do we want to get housing built or don't we? Do we want to get rental housing built or don't we? And FERPO did a report with Altus Group, I believe last year, looking at different housing types in different markets to determine what the sort of cost was of different housing. The study concluded that you know rental housing is the most affordable housing option relative to cost, you know, when you look at the uh, CMHC, what they deem as as affordable, you know, those different variables, 3% income spent on rent or housing costs, you know, in the majority of markets that we looked at, rental was the most affordable housing option. So yes, within that, there are, you know, uh, calls for deeply affordable and attainable and different words are used to describe different uh, options that we want for people. Ultimately, though, Within all of the different housing types available, purposeful rental comes out as the most affordable. So we should be supporting that. And you know, delaying projects because of parking or because of a lot of issues that just seem, quite frankly, to be really more about just not wanting it than actually providing constructive criticism or having constructive sort of uh, issues that need to be raised with a project, which is all fair game. But when you hear things that quite obviously are not that, it's just because, you know, local residents have got to their local elected official and said, we don't want this. So oppose it and come up with any reason you can to oppose it. You have to look at it and say, this isn't reasonable. This isn't, this doesn't make sense. It shouldn't be allowed to happen. We need to move forward. This isn't about not having proper oversight and environmental studies. And sure, you need those things to make sure that we're, we're not damaging the environment. We're taking into account, you know, those important issues relative to infrastructure and environment and so on. But 
you know, to come up with things that seemingly just look like they're uh, just throwing sort of obstacles for the sake of throwing obstacles in front of it. Those things, in my view, that shouldn't be allowed to happen. And there should be a way we can get around those sorts of things. But really at the core, it is a mind shift, a change of attitudes in society that says renting is not the enemy. It's not horrible. It's a good thing. It's a necessary thing. And I would say for people with kids like myself, where do you think your kids are going to live? And if we oppose everything, if we say no to everything, where are they going to live? Are they going to live with you forever? I mean, and I, I don't say that that may, obviously the age in which young people launch is, is older. And so that's a reality for a lot of people. That may not be desirable though for anybody. And so we need to be uh, thinking more about how we can be supportive and not opposing for opposing sake. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now let's get back to the show. Not to get overly political here, you touched on a few things there, stigma, roadblocks. Um, how is FERPO possibly you know, navigating some of the most recent government's kind of recommendations surrounding you know, financialization and kind of demonizing some of these other REITs and really just delaying projects and, like you said, finding excuses not to push projects forward. What's your opinion on kind of what we've been seeing the last few months from Ottawa? Yeah, we're very concerned about any policy changes that the federal government might bring forward that, in our view, would disincentivize construction of new rental housing, would serve as further barriers. Again, everything we're talking about today, you know, we're, we're really trying to, you know, to me, the conversation is all about how much we need to get housing built. Why we would then have governments talking about doing things that would do exactly the opposite really doesn't make any sense to me and to FERPO and to our members. So the financialization conversation is one that is, I guess, the way I look at it is, you know, there seems to be this move to villainize large landlords, real estate investment trusts, corporate landlords. It's easy to sort of, uh, you know, do that to sort of the nameless, faceless, or, you know, corporation, right? That's just corporate entity you can kind of just, uh, you know, criticize and throw mud at. To what end, though? There's no question that the rental industry has changed a lot over the last few decades. I mean, REITs, you know, they've been around for a while now, but, uh, you know, the emergence of corporate landlords and real estate investment trusts, they obviously haven't been here forever in this space, but the industry has evolved and that's been a really good thing. And I'll tell you why. This industry, certainly in Toronto, was, again, founded by a lot of families who wanted to get into building apartments, building housing, which was wonderful because we certainly needed it. And but over time, of course, running those buildings, operating, maintaining those buildings has become very expensive. And so we're at a point now, and certainly in the GTA, where, as I mentioned at the outset, the age of our stock, it now requires significant, significant investment. And in many of those cases, large corporate landlords, real estate investment trusts who have the, the capacity, uh, have the investment to be able to go into these buildings and do the work that's needed. And quite frankly, some who may have built them or managing them over the years, we're no longer in a position where they could necessarily do that. So what would you rather have? You'd, I would rather have a scenario where there's someone who can come in, who does have the, quite frankly, deep pockets necessary to put major capital investment into those buildings to be able to have them be sustainable for the next generation. So I don't see that as, a, I see that in fact as a very good thing 
for the sustainability of the industry. There was a need for that shift to happen. There still are many family businesses doing wonderful things, providing great housing, but we now have a mix of different, different owners, different managers, different sizes, different capabilities. And that's a net positive for our residents and for our prospective residents. So pointing the finger at them, I really take objection to because they are, are they turning a profit? Well, sure. But so were the people who were running the buildings before them. Every industry I know of, if you're a market provider of something, profit is part of the equation. That's what allows you to pay people, to reinvest in your business, to bring in new products and services, right? To contribute to our economy. That's a fundamental aspect of a market economy and market system. So I don't see that as a bad thing. I understand we all do that there are huge affordability challenges. And so perhaps it's easy to pick on the big guy or the big guys because they somehow are seen as being a part of that. I don't see it that way. At the end of the day, the affordability challenges that we're facing in rental housing are first and foremost because of the lack of supply, period. The numbers speak for themselves, in my view. While there may be some who still challenge whether we have a supply crisis or not, it seems to me that the vast majority of you know economists, market watchers, politicians, public understand that we do have a significant supply crisis. We need more supply, period. And will that completely fix the affordability issues? Well, I'm not an economist. I don't know if any one thing will completely fix anything. But I do know that the fundamentals of, of supply and demand as an economic fundamental, I think is a proven one over time. And if you do have more supply, you know, able to offset that demand, it is going to have an impact on price. I mean, I think that's understood and generally accepted. So we need more supply to offset the rising demand that will moderate you know, prices somewhat. And we have a still housing industry that is very diverse. It's got a lot of different people who offer housing, you know, just in terms of the makeup of the industry, small landlords are still the largest segment of those who provide rental housing. It's not the reach of the corporate landlords. They may be the ones who are in the news. They may be the ones that people want to target, but it's still small landlords who are renting out basements or renting out their homes or renting a home they bought, an investment property or renting out a condominium or renting out laneway housing or whatever it be. They still are the largest share of landlords. And so I think that's an important point. REITs are a very small percentage of rental units across Canada, but they are being targeted in this way that I think is unfair. You know, we are spending a lot of energy with colleagues from different associations from uh, RealPAC. We're working with them very closely with our REIT friends and others within FERPO and within CFAA to push back on some of these ideas that whether it be you know changing the tax structure of REITs, whether it be instituting a proportional surtax on rent lift post-renovation. So you're going to basically say to someone, you're going to go in and renovate your apartments and we're going to slap some kind of a tax on you. I mean, talk about totally demoralizing and decentivizing anyone who might want to do that to a unit that's 30, 40 years old that is in major need of being updated. Simply don't understand why government would want to do that uh, when it will have, in my view, the completely opposite effect of what they're trying to achieve. So we hope that we will be successful in sort of making our case to the federal government to say, we need you to do things to help support us, recognizing that rental housing and housing general is a more provincial jurisdiction, but please don't come in and start meddling with the tax system or doing other things that are quite simply going to just certainly not going to lead us down a path of getting more housing built at a time when we desperately need more housing to be built. Let's just leave that alone, not go down those roads, whatever issues that they think they want to address relative to renovations and uh, some of those matters that become sort of uh, flashpoints in the news. 
Let's talk about how provinces, rules that are in place, which I think I'm sure you know, there are significant rules in place for you know eviction, different forms of eviction. I wish it wasn't always called that in some of these matters, renovating a unit, allowing a tenant to return to that unit. There are rules around that. If you think those need to be enhanced, let's talk about that. Let's look at those sorts of measures around enforcement, around ensuring that there are adequate rules in place for these situations, whether it be rental replacement, whether it be you know renovations or demolitions, which do need to happen. Let's make sure that there are rules that operators need to follow and that appropriate notice and compensation is given to residents in those situations, as opposed to bringing in some hammer down that's only going to you know, just cause people to invest elsewhere and not build the housing that we desperately need. Yeah, a lot of good points in there. One specifically, I think a lot of people miss is, I don't have the exact number in front of me, but I believe REITs only make up around 10% of the landlords in the GTA, yeah. yet that's where Ottawa is attacking right now. But they have the capital to try and fix some of these issues. It's what they do. Capital is what they do. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. And and in many cases, they are taking over very old buildings that were, you know, quite frankly, not in a state of repair that they may have maybe should be have been in, again, because of the enormous cost. And because, of course, in Ontario, for example, the vast majority of residents are rent controlled. So certainly that is a, a challenge relative to being able to, from the rent that's collected, income there to be able to you know, deal with all the sort of routine maintenance and all the operating costs that are, of course, are required, but then to be able to put in all the major significant capital investments that are not required, you know, maybe annually, but as the building gets older, those needs become greater and the need is that much more. Well, that can't be gleaned out of uh, when you're in an environment where, you know, rent increases can only go up by a maximum two and a half percent. We know inflation is running much greater than that. It's simply not there for all of those purposes. So if you're a smaller landlord, smaller operator, very difficult for you to be able to uh, find those dollars to be able to make those investments. To your point, larger providers do have the investors and do have the financial wherewithal to make those investments and then be able to turn that building to a better state of condition and go forward for the next, hopefully, 20 or 30 years. Now you said off the top, we don't want to be too overdramatic, but I do think it's worth you know ringing some alarm bells. So you mentioned, let's start with supply first. Like let's Let's fix some of these issues get more units built. So, I mean, it is projected that purpose-built rental supply will increase by roughly 47,000 units over the next year. But this is still far below the number of units required to meet demand. You know, best case scenario, we smash some construction records, but even still, we're probably not going to hit the target that's set out for the number of people coming in. So, I mean, at the end of the report, Everyone does a great job of outlining some, you know, suggestions and recommendations to, you know, the multiple levels of government. So why don't we get into those a little bit? There's some provincial recommendations, some municipal ones. So I'll just hand it back to you. Like, what are your main recommendations for the multiple levels of government to help this issue? I'm going to focus on the province since that's where FERPO devotes. It's obviously the majority of its time. You know, others work at the city and federal level, but I'm going to talk about the province as we're a provincial association. And you know, we've been working very closely with the Ford government now over the last you know five years, and there have been a series of housing bills that have come forward uh, that have, have started to make an impact. As I said, we started seeing that pre-pandemic, and that was uh, due in part to the 2018 exemption that the government brought forward, exempting buildings built after November 15, 2018 from rent control. That provided uh, some certainty around being able to get uh, you know some of those projects moving forward. And in fact, we did start seeing movement. And that's what led to the 13,000 project uh, st- rental starts in 2021, I believe that was. And so maybe it was 2020, I forget, but we, we certainly did see that number. 
But then, of course, pandemic came and obviously it started to slow down. And that was unfortunate because we were starting to build positive momentum in the right direction. So the pandemic, of course, no one could have predicted that. And we all had to get through that. Uh, and now we're trying to see through to the other side. And so the government is continuing to bring forward, you know, of course, they had their housing task force. They brought forward a series of recommendations uh, for government to consider. Uh, some of them have been included in Bill 23 last year, and there are more housing bills. They've, they've, the government's promised at least one uh, significant housing bill every year for the next four years. So what can we do or what are we recommending at FERPO for future housing bills to continue the positive momentum? And as I say, I, I didn't touch on a lot of Bill 23, but certainly DC discounts was a big, big item for us in there. There are many other items in Bill 23 that spoke to trying to eliminate duplication, cut red tape, move some of the approvals uh, more quickly. Those are all very positive. So as, as I talked about the challenges around simply the time it takes to get projects approved and some of those costs. But going forward, there are other things that we need to be looking at. So a couple of suggestions that we have made to the government for consideration for their next housing bill, uh, which we expect uh, to come in the spring. First, a density incentive program for purpose-built rental projects in communities with low vacancies. So if you've got a low vacancy rate, then we really need to look at density incentive for purpose-built rental to be able to get more density you know, which because more density, of course, does help the project economics work. So saying, look, if this is purposeful rental, we're going to give you extra floors to be able to make the economics on that project work. And to not have you just by default sort of go to being a condominium. It could be structured as a multiplier on the baseline density available if zoning is up to date with the official plan, for example. And we want purposeful rental projects available for families across Ontario. Uh, if we want that, which I think we do, then we need to improve those project economics, as I said. So that will be one. A second suggestion, and we've talked about this at FERPO for a few years now. In fact, we did a report with Urban Nation on this before the pandemic, but unfortunately, it got a bit lost in everything around the pandemic. But that is giving rental as of right infill development on existing purpose-built rental sites. So we, the study we did with Urban Nation identified, I think it was 750 sites across the province where Urban Nation projected that as much as an additional 176,000 rental units could be built. We're talking about sites that were built in the 60s and 70s when land was far more abundant and land use rules were much different. So you see these buildings, they've got big parcels of land, uh, green space, uh, you know, the towers here, but they've got all this other land that's all sort of adjacent to it. And we're saying these are the kinds of sites we should be saying there's already a rental tower there. The infrastructure is there. People understand that housing is there at that site. There's a, enough area to build a second tower, maybe even a third. And so those sorts of sites and those sorts of projects should be fast-tracked to say, let's get these shovels in the ground faster. We're not saying, come on to a street with single-family homes. We're saying these are sites where rental towers already exist. So let's support that. Let's not take 100 months to get those projects through. Let's get them through faster, get shovels in the ground, get significant thousands of thousands of units built more quickly. There's huge potential there. We think that could be unlocked to get more rental housing built. And then third... I mentioned before around uh, tax system. And so I talked, first of all, about discounts for, de for development charges. That's a great first step, but there's more we could do. And so let's look at HST, for example, which is, is a significant cost for new rental construction. So we're suggesting that the province either explore options to rebate HST or perhaps defer HST payments to a later period in the project life cycle, perhaps when the building is sold targeting these financial incentives to build more attainable rental housing projects. So, you know, with the high cost of land and construction, most of projects being built today are mega projects or luxury rentals can make those economics work. We need those, as I said earlier, 
you know, we need all kinds of housing built that can appeal to different income types, different meet different needs. So that's why we're saying we need to look at, at some of those tax issues as well that would, of course, just, you know, support the economic uh, model for personal rental. So those are a few ideas we've talked about. Skilled trades, we need to do more to, to support that. Getting people, you know, trained and getting people interested in trades, that's another idea. And you know, we've also talked before uh, about uh, appointing some kind of a facilitator at the province whose position within the Ministry of Municipal Affairs and Housing is to get projects through. We've seen this example in some municipalities where they have someone whose job it is, is to sort of be that quarterback, to sort of work with all the departments you know, within the, the government, local government. Uh, this was, a, for example, we saw uh, this kind of position existed in Kingston, and it was very effective to get projects through bottlenecks to, you know, clear up, uh, you know, issues between departments and get projects through. So that kind of an idea as well at the province to say, like, let's have someone who, uh, for which their role is to make sure is to help get projects through the system. So those are some ideas that FERPO's, you know, put forward uh, to the province. We're certainly optimistic. We have a great partner in the Ford government, and we're optimistic that we'll get more achieved together to get more rental housing built. I love that. I think that's a really good place to wrap this up, ending with some optimism there. Now, Tony, I just want to thank you again for joining us today. Yourself and FERPO are doing a wonderful job at you know helping shine a light on the issues we're facing in the GTA. And also, like we mentioned before, trying to reduce that stigma around rental housing and renting period. Now, to the listeners, make sure to follow FERPO, Build, Urbanation, and of course, Rensing to just stay up to date with what's going on in the rental housing markets. Tony, thank you again. I'm hoping we can do this again sometime soon. Be happy to come back anytime, Matt. Great speaking with you today, and we'll talk again soon. All right. Have a good one, everybody. You've reached the end of another episode of Sink or Swim. Make sure to visit us at rensink.com forward slash podcast to access show notes, key takeaways, and where you can sign up to our newsletter to receive free bonus content. If you found value in the show, please also remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Thanks for listening.